how y'all doing? I'm Michael, joined by Alex as always. How's it going? And this is Fallen Through Plot Holes, a podcast about video game plot lines and how they have a tendency to go off the rails. Alex, how are you feeling today? I'm feeling good. I uh, just got back from a week-long vacation in California. Mm-hmm. Um, at, I will say about that vacation, uh, as part of it, I re-watched the Mario movie. And as an addendum to our last podcast series, uh, I have to say, Illumination is primarily an animation studio. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I gave them enough credit. There's some good animations in that movie. There is. Uh, as somebody who also rewatched the Mario movie recently, albeit uh, via Twitter Blue, mm. uh, yeah, that entire movie has been reposted multiple times. Yeah, I believe that. Uh, yeah, that movie looks really nice. It it's, does. It's a really nice looking movie. There, there are some visual scenes that are just really fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'm glad you could go back, rewatch it, and at least enjoy the artistic merits of it. Mm. How, how do you feel about the plot? Any different? No, no. Plot, I feel pretty much the same. Yeah, same here. Same here. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome back, Alex. It's always, it's always good to have you back on these episodes. Thank you. Uh, as far as how I'm doing, I've fallen down the speedrun hole, like, really, really badly. Mm. And I know this because... As part of, like, doing runs and whatnot, usually I stream them on my Twitch channel, but sometimes I do offline runs. Mm-hmm. And OB- I-, I record these podcast episodes both in Audacity and OBS. And mm. in OBS, I went to go hit the record button, and then I just instinctively grabbed my controller and was uh, holding it for 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> Got very confused as to why I was holding <laughs> it and went, oh, right, I need to put this back. Yep, there it is. Yeah, so... I've been doing the thing that I, well, to be fair, I've been doing probably now for the past five years, which is doing nothing but playing old video games and being like, what are new games? Mm. And you know what? That's perfect for today's episode, Alex, because we're uh-huh. going to be talking about some old video games. Oh, boy. My favorites. Oh, yes. Mine, too. And this one's pretty great because it recently, they recently resurfaced as part of a collection. But before we get into that, Alex, how do you feel about the Internet? My life would not be the same without it, in both good and terrible ways. Yeah, same, same. I think it's safe to say that the vast majority of the world, or mm-hmm. I guess like at least like the Western world, perhaps, has like had their life in irrevocably changed by the internet and mm-hmm. like what it means for our everything from our attention spans to our level of knowledge to the level of misinformation out there to our ability to get from place to place. Like it has literally changed every aspect of about it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. like I said, good and bad things that are about that. It's good because I can look up information about random video games and present it in podcast format. Yes. And also deliver that podcast to people interested in hearing it. Exactly. And that's a really nice thing. Yeah. It's also bad because random misinformation exists and also bad actors are on the are on the Internet and are able to do things like, say, hack into computer systems, um, you know, reverse engineer things and like figure out like backdoors into systems that should be closed, like your Mm -hmm. ovens, for instance, or washing machines. Yep. And make them do things they should not do. Not ideal. Not ideal. And as the internet has become more and more a ubiquitous thing. Like the world is now instantly like more connected and more accessible in a way that seems to be almost like utopian in one way. Mm-hmm. 
like one that has like a now limitless potential of human growth in community and ingenuity. I, I certainly thought that way like 12 years ago or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like nowadays, like the reality is that the internet is kind of like a hellscape of racism, rejection of science, and like has the only like the most su- transparent and yet successful grifts you can possibly imagine. Yeah. And like, that's not, once again, it's not to say that the good parts of the internet aren't there, but there's a lot of bad that's present as well. And it's resulted in a, in a world where your life can be ruined on social media with a strange amount of ease. Your toaster can now connect to the internet and subsequently be hacked. And no matter where you go in public, your phone will want to consistently connect to every object that has a Wi-Fi chip enabled within <laughs> it. Yeah. It has been such a weird, unpredictable future that, of course, the one game series that's going to predict how this is all going to go down is going to be a Capcom series, of all things. We're going to be talking about Mega Man Battle Network today. Oh, boy. Yes. Alex, have you ever played a Battle Network game? Nope. Never have. They're an interesting series. I, unsurprisingly, given I'm a huge Mega Man fan, Mm. I have definitely played the Mega Man Battle Network series. Both the good games and the bad games. Mm. And there are some real bad games in this. Yep. I I hear that there are there is a wide range of quality. Yes, absolutely. There absolutely is. Oddly enough, the one Battle Network game they tried to make like a legit platforming Mega Man game is probably the worst of them all. That's what I heard, yeah. It's also coincidentally my favorite. <laughs> Don't know how that worked out. Yeah. But yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting series in general. One that actually has gotten a recent re-release with the mm-hmm. Mega Man Battle Network Legacy Collection, Volume 1 and 2. Uh, because they no longer do comp- compilations that are one product. Because they know they can get money out of idiots like us. Yep, true. Which, given that uh, it is so far the fastest selling Mega Man thing ever. It's already passed 1 million copies uh, as of, I believe, today. Just despite being out on the market for two weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, they're completely correct about that. Yeah, yeah. Right move, Capcom. Yep, good job. And it, it's interesting to me to see that because to my mind, Battle Network was something that was sort of on the tail end of our generation's childhood mm-hmm. and sort of the the front of the next generation's childhood. And it was... Sort of the next and I would say last time Capcom tried to push Mega Man super hard as like a cross media property. Yeah. Yeah, just about. Yeah, because Battle Network is going to be, oddly enough, the most successful Mega Man thing ever. Yeah. Like in terms of not only sales, but yeah, having things like, hey, there's an anime of this that's going to be translated and dubbed. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's freely available on Capcom's YouTube channel in case you want to watch Mega Man in T-Warrior. <laughs> I don't blame you if you don't. Yeah, but all that effort, I think, sort of paid off in the long run because, yeah, there's a lot of nostalgia around Battle Network. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, there absolutely is. And it is well-deserved because I would say the vast majority of the games in this series are very good. Yeah. It is also a series that, because it's a Capcom series, is incredibly run into the ground very, very quickly. I Mm -hmm. I believe over the six years that Battle Network exists, they're going to have 10 games released in this series, or thereabouts anyways. Mm -hmm. That sounds about right. Literally, Battle Network 1 and 2 are separated by nine months. They were both (laughs) released in 2001. Oh my god. Yes, it's too much. It's too much. 
But of course, it's Capcom. Yeah, that's it's, exactly it's, what, what they do. Yes. So to give a little bit of background, Mega Man Battle Network is a spinoff series of Mega Man. Capcom's most successful series in terms of the amount of games Kenji Inafune convinced Capcom to make, but most unsuccessful in terms of how many of those games made a significant profit. Unlike the main ma mainline Mega Man series, which goes to extremely dumb links to connect to Mega Man, Mega Man mm -hmm. X, Mega Man Legends, and so on, into one, one might argue, cohesive timeline, <laughs> Metal Mega Man Battle Network takes place in an alternate timeline that posits a question, Alex. Mm-hmm. What's that question? What if Dr. Light, the creator of robotics and basically creator of Mega Man in the original series, and mm -hmm. arguably the progenitor of all the terrible things that are going to happen, mm -hmm. what if he traded in his lab coat for a Hawaiian shirt and sandals and decided to invent the internet instead of robots? I imagine similar things would occur. You know, <laughs> oddly enough, no. Huh. <laughs> despite all the odds, the world actually turns out to be a better place. Huh. Yeah, I would have super assumed AI would just occur within that internet and eventually run rampant. Well, it does, but... Uh-huh. It, it doesn't... It doesn't result in the end of the world or, you know, humanity's extinction, like eventually the Mega Man series comes to the conclusion of. Okay, that, yeah, I suppose that is a step up. It is a step up, yes. I mean, it is eventually going to involve aliens. Of course, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Which, to be fair, the original Mega Man series had aliens for about a hot minute before everyone forgot about them. So, <laughs> so yeah, it, it goes surprisingly well, is my point. The world of Mega Man Battle Network is incredibly colorful and vibrant, a series where practically no one dies, despite their best efforts sometimes. <laughs> All the world's problems can be solved by a fifth grader, and all of your enemies can be made your friends if you beat them up online hard enough. Mm. Or sometimes physically. Yeah. Uh, the main character of this series is going to beat a lot of people in the head with hard objects, and that works out very well in his favor, as it turns out. It's also a series that's weirdly prescient about where the internet goes. Although, admittedly, this is in more of, like, due to, like, sheer luck than any real foresight as to where yeah, yeah. he thought the internet was going to go. Hmm. But, like, this is a series where, like, right from the beginning, you're able to, like, connect to, like, the home networks of, like, all sorts of stupid devices that you really shouldn't be able to, like, <laughs> dog houses and bears. <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah, no, you basically can do that. Smart dog houses exist. Mm. And while smart bears don't exist, give it time. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. So this series is going to go surprisingly well for Capcom. At its peak, it's going to sell well over a million copies per entry, with like Mega, Mega Man Battle Network 4 selling over 1.35 million copies between mm. the two versions of the game released. Uh, this is more than the best-selling Mega Man game at the time of that release, which would have been roughly about 2003, 2004-ish. Mm -hmm. uh, previous to that would have been Mega Man 2, all the way back in 19, 1989, I believe. Uh, that sold like, I think, 1.1 copies somewhere around there point is completely blew it out the water mm -hmm. and it was going to be the most successful Mega Man game of all time until Mega Man 11 would come out in 2018 in true capcom fashion this year's sheer success is going to lead to not only six main entries being released in the series but nine additional spin-off games okay so i was actually kind of off about that <laughs> 
you know what the weirdest thing about this is? Is the fact that... Is it correct, then, that the best-selling Mega Man is Mega Man 11? At the moment, it is, yes. The one that came out, like, five years after the last Mega Man game, and then they didn't make more Mega Man games? <laughs> yeah. It's almost like if you give the games room to breathe and just be a bespoke product without shoving the franchise down people's throats, they like it more. Yeah, it seems like that, doesn't it, Alex? It's weird. Yeah, I, I had somebody ask me recently, like, why haven't the Mega Man games, like, sold particularly well, like, ever? And, it, I, you know, thinking about it, like, I, I think this is not really true nowadays for, like, the mm -hmm. vast majority of, like, the people who, like, play video games. But, like, go back, like, 10 years, Mega Man was still sort of a household name, at least among people who played video games. Yeah. Like, you could meet pretty much anybody who's probably at least played a little bit of Mega Man, recognized the character, the concepts, and what have you. Right. And then you look at the vast majority of the series, and you're like, wow, each game sold, like, at most 200,000 copies, some of them far less than that, as it uh -huh. turns out. And it's like, wow, why did that happen? Because these games are, like, all of a consistent quality. They're all pretty darn good games. And it's like, well, yeah, one year they released, like, seven of them. <laughs> Like, I love the hell out of Mega Man. I speedrun Mega Man 4. I literally right. beat that game, like, multiple times a week. I only owned three Mega Man games growing up, mm -hmm. and that was kind of a lot. Yeah. Like, what if, Mega Ma what if Mega Man 3 had come out, like, years later and had the best ideas of 3, 4, and 5? Mm-hmm. Rather than, you know, we have kind of a new idea. Let's make a whole new game. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Or, like, what if, like, when Mega Man went to the PlayStation, instead of, like, Mega Man X4 just being, like, what if Mega Man X but slightly better? Right. Or at least slightly on the same level? Which, I mean, X4 is a great game. What if they actually sort of did something different? Mm-hmm. Which, to be fair, I guess they eventually would with Mega Man Legends, but that game has a whole lot of problems in of itself. Right. Yeah, it's, um, it's funny how that all ends up working out. And it's probably a big reason why Battle Network is going to do as well as it does, because mm -hmm. it is incredibly different. It's it's an RPG, for one thing, a role-playing game. Right. A card-battling role-playing game at that. Mm -hmm. And so it, it cannot Which, be... It. strangely enough, was not that out of nowhere for the time. There were actually a fair amount of those for oh, a while. Yeah. We are going to definitely get into that, because, oh boy, they are going to have a huge influence on why Mega Man takes this direction. Uh-huh. So yeah, this series is going to be very successful. It's going to spawn a sequel series in of itself called Mega Man Star Force. Uh, that gets, oh boy, that gets weird. Yeah. Uh, an anime, Mega Man NT Warrior, that we've already mentioned. And they're even going to do physical products. Like, they're going to do a Tamagotchi-like physical product called the Mega Man Advanced Pets. <laughs> that would be, yeah, you would go out, find people, and you would battle them with, a, like, with an actual physical object. Uh-huh. And it sold shockingly well, from what I understand. Or at least in Japan, it did. Mm. Yeah. Now, in order, we're going to get into the development of this today. And then the next three episodes after that are just going to be dealing with the plots of the rest of the games. The ones mm. that are relevant. There's going to uh -huh. be a few that are most certainly are not going to be. Uh, but, and maybe we'll end up talking about Star Force at some point. We're probably going to give that a little bit of time to breathe, because I think this is going to be a lot of Mega Man. Mm. Yeah. But today, we're just going to focus on the development, and then next episode will be Mega Man Battle Network 1 and 2. And we'll just kind of go from there. Mm -hmm. Now, 
In order to talk about how this series even came about, we need to talk about two things that are going to be the reason why this series comes into being. First off is the Game Boy Advance, and the second thing is a little game called Pokemon. Mm. So, as a refresher, the Game Boy is Nintendo's first standalone cartridge-based handheld system, uh, first being released in 1989. Now, this is a system that was horrifically underpowered at like compared to his competition at the time of his launch, like literally the same year that it launched, the Atari Lynx, mm. a system that not only had a more powerful processor, but was in full color, uh, launched as well. It, but a combination of great games and long battery life would lead to impressive sales and allow Nintendo to fend off competing platforms, such as the Sega Game Gear or NEC's Turbo Express. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, by roughly around 1995, it had become clear that its dominance couldn't last forever. And eventually, a competitor would put something together that would be able to dethrone Nintendo from the top of the portable game mountain. Like, eventually, these screens are good, these color screens are going to become more efficient to actually power batteries. Processors are requiring less voltage. It's just simply a matter of time. Right. Software sales for the platform were also down as well. It seemed like they kind of hit market saturation for that. And to be honest, games on there, they looked old in 1989. They certainly mm. looked old in comparison to the stuff coming out for the PlayStation or the soon-to-be-in-existence Nintendo 64. Right. And developers themselves realized this and wanted a more powerful system to develop for as well. So they also pushed Nintendo to produce a successor. So in 1996, Nintendo got started on that with Project Atlantis. This is Nintendo's attempt to create a 32-bit successor to the Game Boy. However, two things are going to completely kill this project dead in its tracks. <laughs> the first thing is going to happen is in 1996, Pokemon's going to come out in Japan. Man. Mm-hmm. Pokemon is so wild. It is, isn't it? Like, here's this freaking 8-bit classic-as-can-be JRPG with monster battling mechanics. Mm-hmm. That's just going to shake up the entire industry out of nowhere. Yep, it is It is going to buoy Nintendo incredibly well through some lean years. It's mm -hmm. going to cause a portable system, I guess getting ahead of ourselves, to have essentially an additional five years worth of lifespan on it. Mm -hmm. It is going to create this really strange, like, quasi company that's going to consist of three <laughs> different, three different companies all having uh -huh. a weird share in it, like... On top of just, like, the huge cultural cachet that you would think would have died out by now. But no, it's actually nope. stronger than it ever has been. People love themselves some Pokemon, they as sure do I. Yeah. And yeah, it's amazing that in 1996, yeah, this little game's going to come out uh, for the Game Boy. And it it should not have done what it did, but it's... No, it's, it's basically going to actually create a second wave of Game Boy sales. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. Now, I don't think Pokemon requires really much more than that. Mm -hmm. But we do. We will talk about it a little bit more because it's going to have a huge influence on Battle Network. Mm. So, as mentioned, it's a role-playing game where you catch different monsters and use them to form a team. Each monster has different strengths and weaknesses, and the sheer variety of them, 151 in total, means that despite the battle system being rather simple, it ends up being a far deeper and customizable game than it initially seems. Mm -hmm. It also comes with the innovation of coming in two separate versions. Each version of the game is essentially the same with some superficial changes, such as a slightly different roster of Pokemon, 
So if you wanted to collect them all, you would need to find somebody with the opposite version of the one you owned so they could trade you the Pokemon you were missing or be a dumb kid and beg your parents to get you both versions. <laughs> like I did because I was 11 and dumb. <laughs> this is a genius sales tactic and it mm. resulted in huge sales for the game in Japan. A game that was probably was going to sell a ton regardless, but it was right. a really good marketing tool on top mm -hmm. of it. It also created probably, I would say the second Possibly the first legitimate use for the Game Boy Link Cable, a seemingly useless peripheral that was actually kind of shockingly revolutionary mm -hmm. in that it allowed two Game Boys to communicate data to each other in real time. Mm -hmm. um, an incredible feature that no one used to great effect. No, no, not at all. Like there were a couple competitive games that allowed you to play two player using mm -hmm. this. Um, but no one there, really wanted to. There was one game that allowed four players. Mm. Yeah, Faceball 2000. Yeah, you could, you could do first-person shooter action on the mm. Game Boy. It, it did not work very well, but no. you could. Yeah, yeah, most Link Cable games were kind of terrible, like, outside of, like, the few puzzle games, like Tetris and whatnot. Right. But yeah, this was, like, one of the first times where it's like, oh, yeah, no, you definitely are going to want a Link Cable. Yeah, and this, so, yeah, this resulted in huge sales for the game, and this, in turn, would drive increased sales of the Game Boy. Mm -hmm. And all the Game Boy like derivatives, like the Game Boy Pocket, uh, and in Japan only the Game Boy Light. The second thing that happened is that in 1997, Nintendo received a call from Bandai, who informed them they were entering the handheld business with their new system, the Wonderswan. This is something typically what companies do when they're entering the space of somebody that's nominally is somebody that we've worked closely with, mm. just to be like, hey, listen, we might be impacting your sales because we're going to get into this. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Now, Nintendo at first wasn't that worried, except they had hired the company, a company that was uh, formed by former Nintendo legend Gunpei Yokoi to help mm. them design the handheld. Mm -hmm. Now, while Yokoi had passed away by this time, his company was still staffed with ex-Nintendo hardware people, and given Bandai had licenses to basically every popular anime ever, <laughs> right, including a direct Pokemon competitor in the form of Digimon, this was obviously a huge threat to Nintendo. So Nintendo immediately put together a team to create an upgraded color version of the Game Boy in order to stave off this imminent threat to their business. Mm. This resulted in a kind of terrible handheld called the Game Boy Color, mm. which despite the fact that it was just a slightly more powerful Game Boy, would sell an absolute ton of them. I bought one. I have two. Yeah. Because they came in fun colors. and They I, sure I, did. I have a teal one and I have a purple one. Yeah, that purple one's nice. It's a nice purple. It's a nice purple. Nintendo don't know how to do purple. They do. Their purples are always solid. Purple's a hard color to pull off, but they always get it. Always do. So yeah, this combined with Pokemon and the fact that the Wondrous Wand is going to flop <clears throat> upon release means that the need for a true successor to the Game Boy didn't need to happen right away. But a true successor to the Game Boy is going to happen. And with the announcement of the Game Boy Advance in 2000, it was pretty much assumed this system would be just as successful, if not more so, than the Game Boy before it. And yeah, guess, guess what? What's that? This is a safe assumption. It's an incredibly safe assumption, as it turns out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's definitely going to behoove companies to get in on the ground floor and make sure they have games to release day one on the platform. And there's going to be no company more aggressive than Capcom. <laughs> oh boy, there sure isn't. 
No, yes. So Capcom is going to be incredibly aggressive in their support for the Game Boy Advance. Some of these games are going to be great, such as the Minish Cap, the mm -hmm. Legend of Zelda game developed by Capcom's flagship studio. They're literally called Flagship. <laughs> and some are bad, like the port of Final Fight. Mm. And some work despite the fact they shouldn't. Like the uh, shockingly good version of Street Fighter Alpha 3. I've heard that version's really good. It's... Despite being on a system with two buttons? Four buttons, Four, but, I suppose. but that's still two buttons less than what you need for that game. Yeah. And it still 100% works. It has actually more features than, at the time, the <laughs> PlayStation and Dreamcast versions. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. it's an absolutely insane game. Uh, they're going to put out something about 34 games for this system. Wow. Uh, nearly a third of them, or 11 games, are going to be Battle Network related. Mm, right. <laughs> By the way, if you include just Mega Man in general, uh -huh. the amount becomes 16, or nearly <laughs> half. <laughs> So it only makes sense with this level of support that the very first Capcom game is going to be a Mega Man game. But that being said, it almost wasn't the case. So with the announcement of the Game Boy Advance, Capcom wanted to get a team together just right away and just be like, hey, brainstorm ideas, figure this out. Mm. And so Capcom put together a team of developers from Capcom Production Studio 2, a team that just got done putting out Mega Man Legends 2. A game that's going to flop incredibly hard and mm. kill a, a, a subseries of Mega Man. Yep. I do like Mega Man Legends 2. Mm -hmm. They they fixed so many mistakes from the first game. Mm. Uh, maybe one day we'll get Mega Man Legends 3. We will never no. get that. No. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. So they brought them in and tasked them with making a launch game for the new portable. This team led by director Masahiro Yasuma, was given a lot of wiggle room to figure out what type of game would be perfect for the Game Boy Advance. Mm. So the first idea, Alex, mm -hmm. can you guess what genre it's going to be? Uh, platformer? How's horror game sound? Hmm. Hard to uh, nail a horror atmosphere on a portable system, but interesting. Yeah, yeah, you know, bold strategy. Let's see how this goes. Mm-hmm. So... Matsukazu Edaguchi, uh, he's going to be kind of like the co-creator of the series in a way. Mm. Uh, he's going to help Yasuma come up with the overall uh, concept design of this. And the first uh, proposed horror game is going to come with like a peripheral that was that was like a heartbeat sensor. Mm. And the whole idea is that this game would have the theme of having fun while your heart pounds and would presumably had your elevated heart rate play some sort of gameplay functionality in this. Hmm. They don't go into this like a whole lot in the developer interviews for this, but apparently this idea had enough traction that Yatsuma went to a haunted house at a amusement park called Expo Land for research. Uh-huh. Although to be fair, this also could have been just an excuse to go to Expo Land. Probably, yeah. And I say this because the idea was quickly dropped because it was <laughs> unlikely that Capcom was going to okay a uh, weird game with a peripheral that was probably going to dramatically increase the development cost. Right. So, they pivoted, and this is where the Pokemon influence comes to play. Though, oddly enough, not in the way that you would initially expect. So, going back to Pokemon's success, mm -hmm. it naturally meant that with such a successful franchise, you're going to have a bunch of licensing opportunities. One of those was the creation of a physical card-based game. Mm. 
Now, I actually didn't really realize this, but the Pokemon trading card game is one of the first, like, of the big wave of, like, card games that came out of Japan. Like, these uh, sort of, like, competitive card games. Uh-huh, right. Yeah, because it debuted in 1996. Mm. Which was, one, I was like, wow, that's actually far older, older than I expected. And then uh-huh. it's like, two, it was like, oh, yeah, I guess that predates Yu-Gi-Oh! by a good three years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When, yeah, when it came out, it was like, it was that magic mm. and star wars yep pretty much yeah and i think magic still predates uh the pokemon trading card game by i think like a year or two but i think so i think that's sort of why wizards of the coast got the the license for it because they'd sort of proven their talent with magic yeah yeah exactly exactly so it only made sense that they would uh, be the ones to distribute the game so it's going to be a ridiculous success long and short it managed to successfully convert the elements of the Pokemon game into a physical format that encouraged collectability and mm-hmm. in turn made basically all the money in the world. Yep. This success would inspire other companies like Konami to do the same with properties such as Yu-Gi-Oh! The manga that originally wasn't about collectible cards, <laughs> but very quickly became about collectible cards, among mm-hmm. other things. Another weird thing that happened is that these trading card games would then go on to have video game adaptions made of themselves, mm-hmm. which would then sell incredibly well. Okay, to be fair, the Game Boy Color game of the Pokemon trading card game rules. Oh yeah, no, I love that game. No, this that is, game there's is awesome. There is zero shade on that one. Like the same thing for like the Yu-Gi-Oh PlayStation uh, mm. card game. Like mm-hmm. that's also really really good. Yeah, and also has a very interesting speedrun scene around it. <laughs> huh. Yeah. A lot, of, a lot of weird RNG manipulation in that one. So it's very clear that there's a lot of money to be made from this concept. Mm-hmm. And of course, Capcom's going to get in on this. So Masuda and his team decided to pursue this idea, and it's shortly after this, the decision was made to make it a Mega Man game mm. and theme it around connectivity, the future, and the internet. So this is where we come to the controversial and somewhat muddy part of how all this was decided on in the first place. Mm-hmm. Because it's... It's not necessarily like this team was like, hey, we should just make it a Mega Man game. Or at least that doesn't seem to be the case. Hmm. And that's in large part because the game's producer is a one Kenji Inafune. Yeah, there it is. Yes, indeedy. (laughs) So for a quick refresher, Kenji Inafune is a man who was the character designer on the original Mega Man, who soon after would become more or less the Mega Man guy at Capcom. Mm hmm. On top of somehow getting more and more power and influence at Capcom, despite himself sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> he's going to be, in large part, one of the reasons why there are so many Mega Man games in spite of the series' rather tepid sales. As well as a reason why the storyline of the main Mega Man games <laughs> goes so damn off the rails into a confusingly <laughs> twisted tragedy ravine. Mm. So the controversy, if, if you can call it this stems with why they settled on the internet and wireless connectivity as a central theme of the game and the series as a whole. So, Inafune claims that he saw his son playing around with a mobile phone one day and was filled with inspiration. He does not go into detail. (laughs) It's literally just, my kid's on his phone all the time. Man, that's crazy. What if we made a game about that? Yeah, what if we made a game where everyone just carried around cell phones? (laughs) It's like, yeah... Okay. Sure, that that is relevant, yeah. Matsuda, on the other hand, in an interview he gave to Inside Games about 10 years after the release of Mega Man Battle Network 6, 
states that after the release of operating systems such as Windows 95 and the Y2K scare, mm. they saw how the world was becoming more and more driven by computer networks. And so they decided that this game should take place within a society that mirrored where our world was going, a network society. Mm. It should be noted that Matsuda didn't give this interview by himself, but with other prominent members of the Mega Man Battle Network team, such as Masakazi Ed Gucci. Mm-hmm. So, um, and given that there's a kind of more detail in his story. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. What I think happened is that <laughs> Matsuda and his team came up with the concept. Inafune got attached as producer and got him to make it a Mega Man game. Mm-hmm. And then he convinced the higher ups to greenlight the entire thing. So I. That I'm gonna, seems plausible, yeah. I think that's plausible. And then Inafune at some point was like, yeah, no, nah, I saw kids playing cell phones. So I was like, yeah, cell phone game. We should do that. Sounds cool. I'm the producer. It's my idea. Yeah, yep. That that kind of tracks with Inafune. It kind of does. Now, with that being said, this isn't, isn't to say that Inafune didn't at least have some involvement in the development of the game. Mm-hmm. As he would be involved in the character and world concept and illustrations part of it. Which, he did get good. To be fair, kind of rules. It does, although he's not going to have that much input. Also fair. <laughs> so once again, that kind of tracks. It also kind of tracks. In fact, he's only really responsible for one thing in here. We'll get to that in a second. Okay. Let's talk about like how this game even looks in the first place. Yeah. So unlike the more grim settings of Mega Man X and the upcoming Mega Man Zero. Battle Network has a much more utopian feeling to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very similar to the original Mega Man in many ways. It's a very vibrant, sunny, and colorful world of a mm-hmm. very optimistic future. Yep. This is really reflective in the character designs of not only the human characters, but their unlike pets or avatars, the net navvies, which mm-hmm. will get into heavy detail <laughs> uh, later anyways. There's very few things in this game that have sharp edges to them. And I mean that very literally. Like, everything is rounded and soft. Hmm. Uh, even characters such as Shadowman.exe, mm-hmm. a character with a sword and shuriken stuck to his forehead, somehow manages to have, like, a softer tone compared to his, his counterpart in Mega Man 3 for the NES. Mm. Like, they some, like, it doesn't matter how sharp the edge is. You're like, okay, no, that's still, like, a little bit softer with just the colors and shading that they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of that, given this is a Mega Man series set in an alternate universe... The team working on the game had the option of not only making a bunch of original characters, but redesigning and reincorporating alternate takes of existing characters in a way that I found very, very cool. Mm -hmm. Previous boss characters from Mega Man, such as Gutsman and Proto Man, were given radically different designs to help them better fit the cyberspace utopian setting. Funnily enough, others such as like Cutman and Quickman were left like relatively unchanged. (laughs) Cutman's very funny because he looks literally like the concept art for his NES counterpart, but he just has a C on his on his shirt. <laughs> but let you know he's Cutman. And Quickman just like looks cooler somehow. Because, mm. you know, why ruin a good thing? Yeah, exactly. This is all very purposeful, by the way. In an interview posted on Capcom's website as part of the 10-year anniversary of Battle Network, character artist Yuji Ishihara noted that for each character, he wanted them to scream a certain motif. For instance, uh, Stoneman.exe, based upon Stone Man from Mega Man 5, uh, looks like a giant castle instead of a humanoid robot that I guess is made out of bricks. Mm. So, like, there's, like, stuff like that, or, like, how um, Toad Man looks more like a toad in, in Battle Network. You know, stuff like that. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, he also wanted to provide a little bit of surprise and excitement to those fans who like were very familiar with the characters. Like, hey, here's this, uh, we know this like uh, particularly popular Mega Man robot master is going to show up. What's he going to look like? You know, and it's actually pretty cool to see like, oh, wow, they went this redesign. They, they decided to incorporate these sort of elements. Mm-hmm. Like, I really loved playing through these games and being like, oh, yeah, man, we're about to, you know, we're, we're about to run into Woodman. I wonder what it's going to look like. It's like really, really neat stuff. So, speaking of, we should talk about Ishihari a little bit. He's credited as the main character designer of the series, and he's basically responsible for the vast majority of the character designs in this. Mm-hmm. This includes not only Mega Man Battle Network 1 through 6, but his sequel series Star Force as well. So, for a little bit of background on him, he had previously worked with Kenji Inafune as one of the character designers for Mega Man Legends. That's Okay. And that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Legends has a very bright and colorful game in of itself. Also very <laughs> soft in how the characters look. Yeah. But he, going even further back than that, he got to start with Capcom in 1992 with the Magical Quest starring Mickey Mouse series, mm. as well as the Super Nintendo version of Aladdin. So hmm. it makes sense that a lot of his characters are bright, colorful, and cheerful looking. Mm-hmm. Now, one character he didn't design was Mega Man.exe. Essentially, our deuterologistness. Mm-hmm. That responsibility fell to our boy Kenji Inafune. <laughs> <laughs> now, to be fair to Inafune, he is a longtime Capcom artist. That's how he got yep. to start. But uh, how this seemed to come about is a bit shady. Mm. And this direct quote he gave to GameSpot in 2007 concerning how he got the job doesn't come off great. Quote, I did his redesign, Mega Man's that is, in Mega Man Battle Network though it took a couple of threats to have the designers hand over the job to me. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) They still didn't seem to like what I came up with, and they redesigned a bit over my redesign, but the results turned out great. (laughs) 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 So, it's clear that this is supposed to be joking at least a little bit. Right, yeah. But it's also totally believable. He's like, no, 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 I have to redesign Mega Man. It's on me. It's on me. You better make me redesign this. I am the producer on this game. <laughs> he redesigns it. All the character artists look at it and go like, this is shit. Yeah. <laughs> just, just cover it. Just cover it with blue. Yeah. Put, put some yellow outlines on it. It's gonna, We're going to fix this up, man. We're going to make this look good. <laughs> like, I do like the fact that other, apparently other designers came by and cleaned up this work. And it's very likely one of those designers was Ishihara. Uh-huh. And I know this mostly because he talked about how he likes incorporating yellow in his designs and specifically mm. cites Mega Man.exe as one of them. Uh-huh. <laughs> so he, he might as well be the person who designed yeah. him. Yeah. I do say that I do really like Mega Man's design in this game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a it's very, very sleek. He has like a very like Tron-like look to him. Yeah. Albeit without the glowy circuit board-like lines. Mm-hmm. And like it's very clear that he just wanted his design to be it's like I wouldn't say it's like completely streamlined, but it gives the appearance of being streamlined. Yeah, it's it's very sleek, as you say. It's very sort of cyber, but it still has a little bit of that Mega Man blockiness. Mm-hmm. Like it's yeah. it's still got a few edges and blocks that create like a nice silhouette to it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's a it's a good look. It's a good look. Yeah. I think it's good. I I think the game's aesthetic overall and design is quite on point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this game, this series looks amazing. Yeah. In terms of its character design and just how, like, how it really works with, like, the Game Boy Advance's limitations. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Like it yeah. works within those very, very well. Yeah. Like I think one of the great things about it is that all the character designs look great in concept, but also translate pretty well to their sprite work. Mm. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And it's, that's something that's going to be very, um, it's going to be very apparent throughout the series. Uh, although it's going to kind of fall off a little bit in the latter half of the series. Right. Though less due to like them just getting lazy and more because they literally would run out of cartridge space at a certain oh, point. Right. So, now, thankfully, this appears to be the sum total of Inafune's involvement. <laughs> Something that makes sense, given that he's going to be pretty devoted to Mega Man Zero, on mm. top of just getting more responsibilities at Capcom proper. So he's going right. to be very busy. Mm -hmm. Getting back to the people who actually worked on this game, we should probably talk about the main writers of this series. First up is Shin Kurosawa. So Kurosawa is going to be responsible for writing the main scenario for Battle Network 1 through 3, before he ends up leaving the series. Mm. Now, not much is really known about him. Unlike other team members, he really didn't give any interviews. But what I can tell you is that he got a start in 1997 as part of the Mega Man Legends team, okay. doing the scenario planning and event design. Mm -hmm. uh, once again, a ton of overlap between Legends and this series, because Capcom Production Studio 2 worked on the, both the games. Right. After he finished up his work on Battle Network 3, he apparently didn't do a whole lot until 2006 when he worked on Lost Planet Extreme Condition, being credited as the main writer of that game. A game that is totally 180 degrees in the opposite direction. <laughs> <laughs> he then came back for Mega Man Star Force 2 and 3 before just kind of disappearing. Hmm. The last thing I have on him is that he might be the current senior manager of public and investor relations at Capcom. Uh, from a press release I found. Uh -huh. But that could also just be someone else with the same name. Right. So, unfortunately, I don't have a whole lot to glean from his writing style, because it's literally just Battle Network, and we're mm -hmm. going to be going over that. But he does seem to have a habit of somewhat post-apocalyptic stories, given his work on Lost Planet and Mega Man Legends. Yeah. For Battle Network 4 through 6, there are going to be multiple writers who would help out. But the main writer appears to be Matsukazu Itaguchi. Now, we talked a little bit about Edaguchi earlier when he proposed making Battle Network a weird horror game. Mm. But now it seems like a good time to go a little deeper. Of everyone involved in this game, Edaguchi is one of the newcomers on this team. Uh, he was hired by Capcom to be a writer in 1999 and immediately got started on Mega Man Legends 2 alongside four other people. Mm -hmm. uh, Capcom apparently was impressed by his ability to write a story with a cliffhanger that will forever drive the five <laughs> Mega Man Legends fans absolutely crazy. <laughs> So they decided to put him in charge of uh, helping come up with the scenario for the Game Boy Advance series. That wasn't going to be about Mega Man until it was about Mega Man. Mm. So alongside Masahiro Yasuma, he helped create the overall concept of a future world connected by the internet. But it's unknown how much impact he had on the scripts of Battle Network 1 through 3. Instead, he was actually involved in a significant amount of the promotion of the game. So this is going to be a bit of an aside, but it's, this is a fun one. Okay. Edaguchi is one of the few staff members that is actually represented in the games, starting with Mega Man Battle Network 2, as a character mm. named Mr. Famous. <laughs> Mr. Famous is a famous net battler who has a run of 69 consecutive victories. Now, how this character even came about is completely out of circumstance. The story goes that shortly after the release of Mega Man Battle Network in Japan, a promotional event was held in public during Japan's Golden Week, and Edaguchi's boss wanted somebody to go out and challenge people to competitive 
Battle Network battles as somebody called the EXE Professor. No one wanted to do this except for Edeguchi. <laughs> and he only did it because he was new and felt a ton of pressure. So he's like, oh, yeah, I can't say no to the boss. Right. That being said, he thought Professor sounded weak and lobbied the name to be changed from EXE Professor to EXE Meijin, or Expert. Mm. And so after stealing a lab coat from a nearby hospital, he wandered around the event with a Game Boy Advance <laughs> and beat a bunch of 10 to 15 year olds in Battle Network all day. This apparently was very successful. <laughs> and over the year leading up to Battle Network 2's release, he just kept on doing this and developed somewhat of a cult following. Okay, sure. <laughs> yeah. But here's the thing, Alex. This is a double-edged sword. There was a worry with Battle Network 2 coming out. He might actually start losing because people were actually getting good at the game now. Right. They'd had their hands on it for a while. Exactly, and that would ruin the image of the Amazian, who is now going to be a character in the upcoming sequel. So he was forbidden from playing fans ever again. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, he was still continued to appear as like a host for various Capcom-sponsored Battle Network tournaments, mm. so the role clearly grew on him. Mm -hmm. As an aside to an aside, by the way, the um, competitive scene in Battle Network is kind of crazy? I can imagine, yeah. Yeah, Battle Network 6 has multiple hacks associated with it that allow people to play online, and there's mm. a lot of, like, there's a lot of competition that's around it with tournaments and whatnot that I imagine it's only going to grow now that the most recent Legacy Collection actually allows for online functionality like that. Right. And on that note, I hear that these games are wildly unbalanced, and mm -hmm. you can do some extremely broken crap. You absolutely can. Yeah, part of the hacks are actually kind of fixing that uh -huh. a little bit. And like, they, they do get more balanced as the series goes on because they do figure out that, oh, people actually like playing this competitively. Right, yeah, maybe we should make it more competitively viable as opposed to here is the kill deck. Yeah, exactly. But by that same token, these are released on cartridges. They don't get updates, man. Yeah, no. <laughs> so, yeah. So, Edaguchi in general seems like a fun dude. Like, the yeah. only photo I could find of him, like, actually working on the game when he was working on, like, Mega Man 11. And in it, he's just casually cleaning a katana. <laughs> Why does As he have As you it? do. Yeah, who knows? He just does. He's also responsible for the power plant level in Mega Man Battle Network. A level so bad that he's publicly apologized multiple times for it. <laughs> oh, I love those. I love the levels where the developers layer like, yeah, I'm sorry about that one. That, I don't know. Yeah, this was absolutely garbage. This is, oh, we do not know what we were thinking with this one. <laughs> as far as his writing goes, uh, Edaguchi is basically a Mega Man lifer, working mm. on multiple Battle Network and Star Force games, as well as being a game designer in Mega Man 11. His one real credit outside of Mega Man is helping to write the story for the sixth Ace Attorney game, aka the one where Phoenix Wright defends a case so hard it causes a country political system and way of life to collapse. <laughs> Edaguchi in general seems to be involved in a lot of parts of Mega Man Battle Network, to the point that it's difficult to know where exactly, what exactly his like, thought process was when it came to writing. Mm -hmm. Like, a lot of interviews he gives about the most recent Battle Network collection in general is just like, hey, what do you think about, like, this random battle chip? Or, like, what were you thinking at this certain time? But, like, not in relation to, like, the writing and whatnot. Right. Regardless, I think we can conclude that there's a team of writers who are relatively new to this game, mm -hmm. got their feet with, wet with Mega Man Legends, and now we're going to be responsible for creating the most successful Mega Man product ever. So it worked out, I guess. Yeah. And success it will be, Alex. Mega Man Battle Network is going to release in Japan on March 21st, 2001 as a Game Boy Advance launch title. 
It was critically well-received, with a Metacritic rating of 79 out of 100. And while sales data is difficult to find, it is known that roughly 200,000 copies were sold in 2001 in Japan, which is an incredible success by Mega Man standards. Mm -hmm. For reference, Mega Man Legends 2, released the previous year for the PlayStation, sold something like 90,000 copies. (laughs) Pretty bad. Yeah, not great. Full sales data for the game is hard to come by, but some probably inaccurate estimates I found place it roughly around 450,000 copies in total. So hey, that's a win for Capcom. Yep. And when Capcom gets a win, they're going to want more. Yep, that's what they do. And so literally nine months later, Mega Man Battle Network 2 is going to come out in Japan on December 14th, 2001. And it's going to sell even better. Selling 124,000 copies in Japan for the month of December alone. Once again, no real idea how well this game did overall. Even VG charts can't really mm-hmm. ballpark it. But mm. what we do know is that this game did exceed the sales of the first game. If perhaps not by a lot. Right. See, so to my mind, that's where you want to pump the brakes a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You release one game, it's a big surprise hit, everyone's like, whoa, that's a new thing, this is cool, and then you go, okay, cool, you take the lessons you learned from developing that first one, you make a clearly superior sequel that mm-hmm. everyone eats up and is happy with, and then you yeah. go, okay, now let's chill a little bit and think about where we go from here. Mm-hmm. And you know what, Alex, they almost did that. Mm. Would you believe they almost did that? That actually is surprising. Yeah, it is. Because the team decided, okay, well, this is moderately more successful. How about we make one final game in Mega Man Battle Network 3, kind of give like a little bit of a closure to the series, Hmm. and uh, just kind of see where that goes. Yeah. Alex, they made a mistake and made a very good video game. Ooh, yeah. (laughs) Because that's going to be very successful, both critically and commercially. Oh. And while it's not going to break a million copies, we know it gets very close. Mm. Battle Network 3 is going to sell 500,000 copies in Japan by itself. It's going to be so successful that Capcom is going to make an updated version called Battle Network 3 Black version, the original being called Blue. Mm -hmm. And that itself is going to sell another 170,000 copies in Japan by itself. Mm. It's clear the line graph is going up. Right. And while we know it doesn't sell more than a million copies because Capcom doesn't list it on its website, Mm -hmm. it probably gets very close. Probably. And regardless, that line probably ain't going to come down anytime soon, baby. So Capcom's going to get the bright idea to make all the battle network all the time. (laughs) A decision that's going to result in some questionable games. Uh We're going to discuss those next time. Alex, how are you feeling? I feel good. I feel this is... Oh, this is such an interesting... It reminds me a lot of Castlevania, mm-hmm. where they were like, okay, this series, this is an older series. It's not really going to like lend itself well to modern AAA 3D gaming. Mm-hmm. What can we do with it? Well, what if we just like went back to the classic formula, or even a new formula, but like we just went back to the the roots of it on the GBA Mm -hmm. where development costs aren't as high. The bar for stuff isn't as high. We can stick with 2d and sprite work Mm. and we just, you know, release a cheaper game. Oh, people like that. Okay. Let's run it into the ground. Yeah. What if we pump out a new game, like every 10 to 12 months or so? 
that's going to work out fine, right? Yeah, the people won't get tired of this, definitely. Oh, they're, they're selling less and less. Well, we got to cut the budget of these games. Oh, you want to maybe not make any more? No, no, no. No, 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 we got to keep making more. People just, will. People are buying them. Just reuse the sprites. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Yeah, there's a very, yeah, there's a very Castlevania-like arc to this of like, boy, we tried to do a 3D game. That didn't work out. Oh, the Game Boy Advance? Oh, yeah, let's just kind of throw um, throw this, like, you know, weird quasi-sequel you know sequel sort of series on there. Oh, yeah. wow, it did very well. Oh, no, this is going to be a problem. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, interesting how Capcom and Konami mirror each other in it's, fascinating ways. It's really fascinating sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to definitely... Uh, one thing I'll say Capcom has over Konami, though, mm-hmm. lots of these games are absolutely ridiculous in a way that Castlevania cannot even touch. <laughs> I'm very, very excited to tell you all about that. I'm excited. Uh, Alex, do you have any final thoughts before we sign off? Do you think there was ever talks of a Battle Network Pokemon crossover? I mean, given there's the Battle Network Boktai crossover, yeah. possibly. I mean, honestly, yeah, I'm shocked that never did happen. Yeah, I have to assume that's just a thing where. That's just an instance of Nintendo holding their licenses too close. That that like, is, it, yeah. They yeah. looked at it and they went, no. Yeah, Nintendo is not really a crossover company, at least with other companies. Like they yeah. will every once in a while in ways mm-hmm. that you just wouldn't expect. Like, yeah, we have a good relation with Hudson, so here's a Wario and Bomberman game. Mm-hmm. Why? I don't know. We'll call it we- Wario Blast. Yeah, we have a good relationship with Ubisoft, I guess? Yeah, sure. Anyway, here's Rabbids in an XCOM game with Mario. Yeah, Mario has a gun now. It's weird. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah, it always happens in the strangest possible ways. Yeah. Mario gets a BMW. Like, yeah. Meanwhile, you're like, you're like, how about this obvious thing? And Nintendo's like, nah. We'll do that. We will cross over with Sonic, but it has to be about the Olympic Games. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> Although I guess they they would put Sonic in Smash eventually, so eventually, it's not, yeah. You know, they, they they at least do the thing. Ah, but yeah. Well, next episode we're going to be talking about the plots of Mega Man Battle Network One and Two, aka What If We Irradiated a Bunch of Children. Don't worry, it's lighthearted. Yeah, uh, it works out well for them. It works. <laughs> You know, it actually does, Alex. (laughs) But yeah, that will be for next time. Alex, thank you so much for joining us as always. Of course. And for you, the viewer who wants to listen to more episodes like this, such as the three-part series that's about the original Mega Man series, which kind of funny how we're going to be covering less games, and yet this is going to be one episode longer than... Yeah, I'm, I'm actually shocked to remember that part that was only three parts. It was kind of a fever dream. Yeah. You could, but you can listen to that fever dream at ftp.podbeat.com or search for Fallen Through Plot Holes on your podcast service of choice. Of course, uh, leave us a follow and leave us a review. We'd love to hear how we're doing. And with that, take care, everybody. Take care.